Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 31, The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and LGBT Protection from Discrimination Under That Law. The Supreme Court is going to hear three cases that will address that question next term, and that's why it piqued my curiosity this time. The pertinent part of the federal statute, Civil Rights Act 64, says, It shall be unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual, or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. In short, an employer can't discriminate based on race, color, national origin, religion, or sex. So, the question the Supreme Court's going to be dealing with next term in 2020 Is discrimination against a homosexual barred under the sex-protected class? And the same question will be applied by the Supreme Court in a separate case within the context of a transgendered person. Discrimination against that person is prohibited under the Civil Rights Act because that act makes it illegal to discriminate based on sex. Now, it appears to me, and I, I don't think there's really that much question about this, that Congress meant to create the protected class of sex as only applying to the distinction between males and females. So you can't discriminate against somebody because they're female, or you can't discriminate against somebody because they're male. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And uh, remember, follow me on social media, Twitter at Blue Carp and on Facebook.com slash Blue Carp. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at either one of those places. And please check out the Facebook page and like it. Share, share, share. And if you really want to help, you can donate to this podcast. The link will be in the show notes. And it's paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. I was going to repeat that back like they do on the radio for phone numbers, but then I realized you can just hit the go back 15 seconds button on wherever you're listening to this if you are so inclined and get it the first time. So I appreciate all the feedback. I appreciate the support we've gotten here over the course of our first 30 episodes, and we're excited about continuing to do it. And wherever you're listening, like, comment, subscribe, share if you like. All right, so this issue came up because the Supreme Court announced this week on April 22nd, that they're going to address these three cases that I, I, I mentioned pertinent to this question. There's a post on Scottis blog, which is Scottis acronym for Supreme Court of the United States blog. It's all one word. And I've linked that in the show notes. That's what piqued my interest about it. So the blog post is by Amy Howe, and she discussed these three cases. She wrote, the Supreme Court announced on Monday, April 22nd, that it will weigh in next term on whether federal employment discrimination laws protect LGBT employees. The first case, Altitude Express v. Zarda. The justices will decide whether federal laws banning employment discrimination protect gay and lesbian employees. The petition for review was filed by a New York skydiving company, so that's kind of cool, now known as Altitude Express. After the company had fired one of their employees, Donald Zarda, he worked as an instructor for the company. He was fired. Zarda went to federal court where he argued, contended, claimed that he was terminated because he was gay. And he claimed a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which bars discrimination because of sex. And that's the key phrase. Is fired or is being fired because you're gay, does that mean he was fired because of sex? So in Zarda's case, the trial court threw it out, saying that Title VII doesn't allow claims alleging discrimination based on sexual orientation. But the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit reversed, concluding that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act does apply discrimination based on sexual orientation because, according to the Second Circuit, such discrimination, quote, is a subset of sex discrimination. Now, there's a split among circuit courts on this, and the Supreme Court will, I assume, clear that up next year. 
And this will be going on. This will be released next year during the presidential election. So you know how politics can play a part in stuff. Look for that upcoming. So the skydiving company lost to the Court of Appeals. They asked the Supreme Court to hear it, and now they said they will. So the Altitude Express case is going to be consolidated with another case with very similar facts. That one is Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. The plaintiff in that case is Gerald Bostock. He worked as a child welfare services coordinator in Clayton County, Georgia. Bostock argued that after the county learned that he was gay, it falsely accused him of mismanaging public money so that it could fire him. When it was in fact, he was fired because he was gay. So basically he's saying they fired him based on a pretext after they found out he was gay. And a pretext is just a fancy way of saying they made up a reason to cover up the real reason. So Bostock went to federal court arguing that his fire, firing violated Title VII, just like the guy in the skydiving case. So the county, which was, in a, which was his employer, asked the court to dismiss the case, arguing that Title VII does not apply to discrimination based on sexual orientation, just like the other case. The district court agreed, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit upheld that ruling. So you can see the second circuit in the Altitude Express case said homosexuals are part of a protected class because the Civil Rights Act of 1964 says you can't discriminate based on sex. But the 11th Circuit said the opposite. Sex just means you can't discriminate based on whether or not a person is a man or a woman. So the Supreme Court will decide which will be the law. The third case is slightly different, and that one is R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes versus the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So in that case, the justices are going to consider whether that same pertinent part of the statute applies to transgender employees. In this case, a small funeral home in Michigan is owned by a guy named Thomas Rost, describes himself as a devout Christian. In 2007, the funeral home hired Amy Stevens, whose employment records identified Stevens as a man. Six years later, okay, in 2013, so that's only six years ago, Stevens told Rost that Stevens, the employee, told the employer, who identifies as a Christian, devout Christian nonetheless, employee told him that she identified as a woman and wanted to wear women's clothing to work. Ross fired her because Ross believed both that allowing Stevens to wear women's clothes would violate the funeral home's dress code and that he would be violating God's commands. That's quote, violating God's commands by allowing Stevens to dress in women's clothing. So this religious exemption issue is back. Now, the court may or may not get to that, but they did deal with it in Masterpiece Cake Shop. At least to some degree, they didn't say the bake shop could just deny anyone who wanted a cake for a gay wedding. They sent it back because the Colorado Civil Rights Commission treated them, uh, called them Nazis, basically, and showed that they were not taking the, the claim seriously. And as a follow-up on that, Colorado has dropped all civil rights actions against Masterpiece Cake Shop. But that could come up again in this case. But it won't matter if the Supreme Court says that transgender people are not a protected class. So that's the question is going to be the same, but the application is going to be different. The first two cases, the plaintiff is claiming that he is a member of a protected class because discrimination against homosexuals is prohibited. And then this one with the funeral home, the plaintiff is saying discrimination against transgenders is prohibited. So the Supreme Court could say yes or no to homosexuals being part of the protected class, and they could say yes or no to whether or not transgenders are people are part of that protected class. They could say yes to one and no to the other. So in the funeral home case, the EEOC filed the lawsuit on the employee's behalf, the transgender employees. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled for the transgender plaintiff. So the Sixth Circuit said transgender people are members of the protected class because you can't discriminate because of sex. 
Supreme Court granted the funeral home's petition, agreeing to consider whether Title VII bars discrimination against transgender people based on either their status as transgender or sex stereotyping under the Supreme Court's 1989 decision in Price Waterhouse v. Hopkins. And we're going to talk about that one. And in that case, the court said that a company can't discriminate based on stereotypes of how a man or a woman should appear or behave. And in the funeral home's case, it's going to be argued separately from the first two, which are Bostock and Altitude Express. All right, so you see what's going to come up next year in the U.S. Supreme Court. So let's talk some about this Civil Rights Act of 1964 and how it created the five different protected classes. And all of these cases are about the sex classification. So the Supreme Court is going to decide or address. We'll see what they do. We assume they're going to decide. They're going to address whether homosexuality and transgenderism, if either one of those or both of them, are part of the protected class under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because it is illegal to discriminate on the basis of sex. So like I said, Originally, everybody knew that sex meant you can't discriminate because somebody's a man or a woman. Got it. That's what it says. Now they're arguing that it also applies to homosexuals and transgendered people. So let's talk about that 1989 case that is going to be relevant in the transgender case. That is Price Waterhouse v. Hopkins. And that case was about a woman suing because she was denied partnership in that famous firm. But it's relevant to the third case, the transgender case that the Supreme Court will hear next year. And it's a good basic case to discuss sex discrimination in general under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I'll just try to say Civil Rights Act so I don't have to say it of 1964 every time. There are other civil rights acts, but in this podcast, I'm only talking about the one in 1964. So it's pretty well established that an employer can't discriminate against anyone in hiring, payment, promotion, or other employment-related benefits. Well, the employer can't discriminate against an employee in one of those protected classes, including sex. Civil Rights Act was passed primarily to stop discrimination against people of color in the United States. The statute was considered and still is considered a major civil rights victory for African Americans. So the statute lists five protected classes. So the primary impetus was racial discrimination, but they also didn't want sex discrimination or religious discrimination. So that's part of it as well. So there's five protected classes, race, color, national origin, religion, and sex. So you can't discriminate, an employer can't discriminate based on someone being a member of one of those protected classes. Let me be a little more precise. You can't be discriminated against based on any of those factors. So the Supreme Court is going to decide if sex includes discrimination against someone because of their sexual orientation and or transgender status. So sex clearly means you can't discriminate against someone because they're a woman. And you might ask, hey, Dave, what's the big deal about the Equal Rights Amendment and the Equal Pay for Women statutes that people are talking about all the time? Now, if this statute already exists, if this statute says you can't discriminate, which includes pay rates, because someone is a woman, doesn't that take care of it? You might ask that. I certainly did. And I'm no expert on sex discrimination law, but it seems to me that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 makes it illegal to discriminate against someone based on sex. That's kind of exactly what it says. So I don't know why you need another statute. But maybe this is one of those concepts where you have to be an Ivy League intellectual or just a basic progressive who poses as an intellectual who thinks he's smarter than everyone else. So maybe you got to be one of those to understand why law that says it's illegal to discriminate against women isn't sufficient to make it illegal to discriminate against women. And Congress needs another law to make it illegal to discriminate against women. Hey, I went to University of North Carolina, undergrad in law school, state schools. I clearly am not smart enough to understand why that's necessary. So in Price Waterhouse, where the woman was denied partnership and she said it was because she was a woman, it was a 6-3 decision. It's It remanded it. The Supreme Court changed some evidence rules and some burden of proof rules and remanded it. So neither the, the plaintiff woman or the company won at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sent it back down. But it was a 6-3 decision, but 
the sixth majority that voted to send it back down for particular reasons were comprised of four justices on the main opinion and two justices who each wrote separately but agreed with the result. Justice uh, William Brennan wrote the lead opinion joined by three other justices, but it's not a majority opinion because only four justices signed on to it, but six still agreed with the result and three dissents, obviously. And since I'm just discussing this case by way of an illustration about sex discrimination, I won't run down my normal roster of the justices who appointed them and what law school they attended. As you know, I like to do that to show what kind of an oligarchy we're in, because almost all of them went to an Ivy League school, especially now. All right, so the named participants, Anne Hopkins, she's the only plaintiff in this particular lawsuit. She was a senior manager at Price Waterhouse and was denied partnership. Price Waterhouse is now Price Water. Waterhouse Coopers, and that's all one word. And Price Waterhouse is smushed together as capital P, no other capital letters, until you get to Coopers, and then the C is capitalized. And it described itself now as the world's largest multinational professional services network. Doesn't mean a thing to me, but that's what they are. All right, so facts in this case, this is from the opinion. Ann Hopkins, senior manager in an office of Price Waterhouse, when she was proposed for a partnership in 1982. At that time, she was neither offered nor denied admission to the partnership. Instead, her candidacy was held for reconsideration the following year which is apparently one of the three outcomes at the time, at least, at Price Waterhouse. So next year, when the partners in her office refused to propose or put her up for partnership, she sued Price Waterhouse under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, charging that the firm had discriminated against her on the basis of sex. The district court judge, Giselle, G-E-S-E-L-L, that's how I will pronounce it, in the District of Columbia, Federal District Court, District of Columbia, ruled in her favor, and the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit Court affirmed. Supreme Court said, we're going to hear this, to resolve a conflict among the different courts of appeals concerning the burdens of proof of a defendant and plaintiff in one of these lawsuits. When it's been shown that the employment decision resulted from a mix of legitimate and illegitimate motives. So there were some legitimate reasons not to make her a partner, but there's also evidence that they didn't make her partner just because she was a woman. So the Supreme Court in this Price Waterhouse case wanted to resolve a conflict about the burdens of proof in these cases, and I'm not going to get into that because burdens of proof are pretty boring. But I do want to go over the basis of the case because it is a good example of sex discrimination under the pertinent discrimination statute. And this case illustrates it. And of course, because the funeral home case that's the Supreme Court here next year is going to rely on this, at least in part, probably. So Justice Brennan discusses the partnership process at Price Waterhouse, does that for a while, very specific about it. Part of that, he says, Price Waterhouse places no limit on the number of persons whom it will admit to the partnership in any given year. Ann Hopkins, the plaintiff, had worked at Price Waterhouse's Office of Government Services in Washington, D.C. So she worked there for five years when the partners in that office proposed her as a candidate for partnership. Of the 662 partners at the firm at that time, Seven were women. That's not a very high percentage. Of the 88 persons proposed for partnership that year, only one, Hopkins, who's the plaintiff in this case, was a woman. Still a pretty low ratio, right? I mean, this is in the 80s. It's not during Mad Men times. 47 of those candidates were admitted to the partnership. 21 were rejected. And 20, including Hopkins, the plaintiff in this case, the only woman, they were held for reconsideration the following year. So it's a major process. A lot of people are involved. She's the only woman this particular year, one of very few women in the firm that were considered for partners. 13 of the 32 partners had submitted comments on Hopkins, supported her. Three partners recommended that her candidacy be placed on hold, and eight stated they did not have an informed opinion, and eight recommended that she be denied partnership. So three recommended her to get it, eight said they don't know, and eight said 
We don't want her to be a partner. So the partners supporting her candidacy for partnership showcased her successful two-year effort to secure a $25 million contract with the Department of State, the government, labeling it an outstanding performance and one that Hopkins carried out virtually at the partner level. These partners, and I guess maybe some other ones, in the office praised her character as well as her accomplishments. So some of the good stuff was they described her as an outstanding professional who had a deft touch, a strong character, independence, and integrity. Clients appear to have agreed with these assessments. At trial, one official from the State Department, one of their clients, the one that she was apparently responsible for getting $25 million contract with, so somebody from the State Department described her as extremely calm, intelligent, strong and forthright, very productive, energetic, and creative. So you can see there are people say good things about her. Here are some of the bad things. On too many occasions, her aggressiveness apparently spilled over into abrasiveness. Staff members seem to have borne the brunt of Hopkins' brusqueness. Long before her bid for partnership, partners evaluating her work had counseled her to improve her relations with staff members. Although later evaluations indicate an improvement, Hopkins' perceived shortcomings in this important area eventually doomed her bid for partnership. Virtually all of the negative comments from the partners about her, even some of the partners who wanted her to be a partner, the criticism had to do with her, quote, interpersonal skills. The trial judge indicated that both her supporters and opponents indicated she was sometimes overly aggressive, unduly harsh, difficult to work with, and impatient with staff. Brennan goes on describing this whole process. There were clear signs, though, that some of the partners reacted negatively to Hopkins' personality because she was a woman. One partner described her as macho. Another suggested that she, quote, overcompensated for being a woman. A third advised her to, quote, take a course at charm school. Several partners criticized her use of profanity. In response, one partner suggested that those partners objected to her swearing only because, quote, it's a lady using foul language. Another one of her supporters explained that Hopkins had matured from a tough-talking, somewhat masculine, hard-nosed manager to an authoritative, formidable but much more appealing lady partner candidate. But get this part. The trial court judge found one piece of evidence. One guy at Pricewaterhouse bore responsibility for explaining to Hopkins the reasons for the decision to place her candidacy on hold. Quoting Brennan, he delivered the coup de grace. In order to improve her chances for partnership, Thomas Byer, the guy said, the guy at Pricewaterhouse told her, she should, quote, walk more femininely, talk more femininely, dress more femininely, wear makeup, have her hair styled, and wear jewelry. Okay, what a dumbass this guy is. It's as if he is like laying out her case for her, for her reasons to sue. I'm sure he's being honest, but man. So the trial judge found that Price Waterhouse legitimately emphasized interpersonal skills in its partnership decisions, and also found that the firm had not fabricated its complaints about her interpersonal skills as a pretext. Moreover, he concluded the firm did not give decisive emphasis to such traits, only because Hopkins was a woman. So you can see how these claims might take a long time to litigate when there are some legit reasons to deny a promotion, in this case to a partner, but also clearly discriminatory reasons, <laughs> like that were said. Got to dress more like a woman, talk more femininely. So this case, this Pricewaterhouse case, is about what level of evidence the plaintiff must show to win, and what, if anything, the employer has to do to rebut that showing. They talk about preponderance of the evidence standard, clear and convincing evidence standards, but we're not going to get into that. And let's talk about discrimination laws. All employment discrimination laws change the common law doctrine of employment at will. So at common law, before there are any statutes that changed the status of employers and employees, anybody could be fired for any reason and anybody could quit for any reason. Employment at will. I don't have to have a good reason. I don't. I can have a bad reason. I can have a horrible reason. I can have no reason at all. I can fire you. 
That's common law, employment at will. So all of these discrimination laws change that. Why? Why do they change it? Well, because Congress says that some people shouldn't be fired for certain reasons. They think that makes society a better place, and maybe it does. But do you have a right to a job? No, you don't. Because if you have a right to a job, someone has the obligation to provide a job for you. And that's nonsense. So these legislative creations, civil rights acts, other discriminatory statutes, don't create rights. They create causes of action. They create reasons to sue and recover money or get your job back if you're the victim of unapproved conduct, like discrimination. But let me ask you this, just kind of a hypothetical philosophical question. What if someone wanted to quit a job or refused to take a job because he got a new boss or his the boss was going to be gay or black or whatever? So the employee wants to quit for a racist reason. Should he be able to quit or should he be forced to work? Because really, what is the difference? If we want to stop discrimination, what's the difference between an employer firing somebody for a racist reason or an employee quitting for a racist reason, especially if it's just two people, you know, if one guy's hiring one guy. So if an employer can't fire you for racist reasons, why should an employee be able to quit for racist reasons? I'll leave that for you. Let's be clear here. Discrimination is horrible. Discrimination is not a good way to run a business. I'm just describing the common law and then the causes of action that have been created to abrogate the employment at will doctrine. Abrogating the employment at will doctrine, policy decision, people can argue it. And that's what they did in Congress. And they do that all the time in Congress and in state general assemblies. So we want to get into the meat of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Supreme Court eventually does after they go over all these facts. Brennan wrote, in passing Title VII, that's the applicable part of Civil Rights Act, Congress made the simple but momentous announcement that sex, race, religion, and national origin are not relevant to the selection, evaluation, or compensation of employees. No doubt about that. That's what Congress did. But, you know, sexual orientation is not on that list. But on those cases that be heard next year, the argument is being made that gay or transgender is included in the prohibition against discrimination based on sex. So Congress definitely wanted to end discrimination based on race. They said race, color, country of origin, made it very clear. They asked very clear about sex and religion. They didn't say sexual orientation. They could say that now. They could make this whole thing moot if Congress amended the statute to include sexual orientation. They could add other words to to make it clear that all LGBTQ people cannot be discriminated against. They have the power and the legitimate congressional authority to do that. Well, as current law stands, I mean, put that caveat out there. Because we talked about Civil Rights Acts before and the Interstate Commerce Clause, notwithstanding that. In the Civil Rights Act, it, it's clear. Sex means whether or not you're male or female. Or if you have XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes. So we can avoid the whole gender is a cultural construct thing. Chromosomes are not cultural constructs. So the transgender plaintiff might have a better argument. Because if you're being fired for dressing, presenting yourself as a woman, is okay if you're a woman, but it's not okay if you're a man. That's discrimination based on sex, right? It is. But for the homosexual plaintiffs, they aren't being fired, arguably, or denied a promotion. Because of being a man or a woman themselves, they're being discriminated against because of who they have a relationship with. The sex of that person, not of their own sex. Now, I think that's a ridiculous reason to fire somebody. It's horrible. I wouldn't want to work for that kind of company. It's patently unfair. But we have to talk about the separation of powers and legitimate congressional authority and judicial authority and executive authority. They're separate things. If the Supreme Court thinks it should be against the law to discriminate against homosexuals, for example, patently unfair. But the Supreme Court has no legitimate authority to decide policy issues. That's the job of Congress. Congress could easily add the words sexual orientation to the statute and it would be done. That's legitimate. But they haven't and they didn't. And here we go again. I keep coming back to Justice John Marshall Harlan, the second one, when he said, and this should be above every 
appellate courtroom. Quote, the Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. So the proper place to make this happen, to make it illegal to discriminate based on LGBTQ status, is through Congress, not through the courts. And what the Supreme Court will be deciding isn't a constitutional question about what the Constitution prohibits the government from doing. It's a statutory question about what a particular statute, the Civil Rights Act, says employers cannot do. They can't discriminate against someone due to their race, color, country of origin, religion, or sex. Sex means man or woman in this context. So the four of these things are clearly descriptors. Your race, your color, your religion, your national origin. They describe you. They're not activities. So to include homosexual activity as someone who participates in that as part of the protected class of sex, which is usually, uh, which is a descriptor, man or woman, that's a descriptor. So if you're going to define the fifth characteristic, sex, to include sexual activity, that's not a description. It doesn't fit in the pattern of the five things that are named. And again, let's all assume we agree that homosexuals should be protected against discrimination. I know everybody doesn't agree that, but we're assuming that for argument. That doesn't mean the Supreme Court should rewrite the statute. Only Congress has the legitimate authority to amend its statute. If the Supreme Court does it, they're usurping power from the legislative branch, power it does not legitimately possess. Regardless of the social ills one is attempting to rectify, the separation of powers means something. Justice Harlan's admonition needs to be acknowledged and applied. But I do think there are arguments. There are legitimate arguments. The Supreme Court said in this case, the Price Waterhouse case, quote, Congress intent to forbid employers to take gender into account in making employment decisions appears on the face of the statute. So that's the gender of the employee, not the gender of the person with whom the employee is engaged in a relationship. Again, Congress is legit power to change that. Supreme Court doesn't. In the Price Waterhouse case, Brennan continued to say that an employer may not take gender into account is not, however, the end of the matter, for that describes only one aspect of the statute. The other important aspect of the statute is preservation of an employer's remaining freedom of choice, acknowledging that some of their freedom of choice has been taken away. We, the Supreme Court, conclude that the preservation of this freedom means that employer shall not be liable if he can prove that. Even if it had not taken gender into account, it would have come to the same decision regarding a particular person. So part of the reasons you fired somebody is because they're a woman, but you would have fired her even if it was a man. That's not prohibited, according to the Supreme Court in this decision. Court says along that same vein, we, the Supreme Court, think these principles require that once a plaintiff shows that gender played a motivating part in a decision, an employment decision, the defendant may avoid a finding of liability only by proving that it would have made the same decision, even if it had not allowed gender to play a role. So that's according to the lead opinion by the plurality of the court. Now we'll see what this current Supreme Court does next year when it takes those, these three cases that we've mentioned. Brennan, in this Price Waterhouse case, says, We have, in short, been here before. Each time we have concluded that the plaintiff who shows that an impermissible motive played a motivating part in an adverse employment decision has thereby placed upon the defendant, the employer, the burden to show that it would have made the same decision in the absence of the unlawful motive. And Brennan says, Our decision treads this worn path, this well-worn path. That's what Brennan said. Now, I find it amusing because the the dissent signed on by three justices referred to that comment. Brennan said, our decision today treads this well-worn path. The dissent said, that may be a well-worn path, but it is in the wrong forest. So in the words of Michael Kelso, burn. Here's the language from this Price Waterhouse Supreme Court case that the transgender plaintiff, at least, will, will use next term. So here's that. Well, I think they will. It makes sense that they will. This is about sex stereotyping. Brennan wrote, as for the legal relevance of sex stereotyping, 
We are beyond the day when an employer could evaluate employees by assuming or insisting that they match the stereotype associated with their group. For in forbidding employers to discriminate against individuals because of their sex, Congress intended to strike at the entire spectrum of disparate treatment of men and women resulting from sex stereotypes. So clearly, all right, that's the quote there, but so clearly it's disparate treatment of men and women, not of transgenders and or homosexuals and men and women. Again, Congress can make it say that, but they didn't. But this argument about sex stereotypes, I think, I think will be something along the lines that it is a sex stereotype that men don't wear dresses or makeup. So the Supreme Court may well keep it that simple and rule in the transgender plaintiff's favor on that issue. I think that's reasonable given the current statute and the power of that statute, notwithstanding everything we've discussed about the Interstate Commerce Clause and how that has been abused, keeping that aside. But if the court says transgender people are protected, in this particular case, it may have to deal with the employer's religious beliefs, like in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Now, I don't know if that's part of the upcoming arguments or not, but we'll keep you up to date as that case progresses. And I haven't done a podcast on the Supreme Court's decision in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, but I did do an article on it. And there's a link to that article in the show notes. Because while the Masterpiece Cake Shop dealt with a religious objection to state civil right laws here in Colorado, the U.S. Supreme Court didn't address it. The U.S. Supreme Court just threw it back because the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was so blatantly dismissive of Jack Phillips' case. That's the guy who owns, runs Masterpiece Cake Shop. So I can see how they might, the Supreme Court might rule in favor of the transgender plaintiff based on the prohibition of demonstrating discrimination based on sex stereotypes. Now, I think that applies more clearly to the transgender plaintiff than it does to the homosexual plaintiff. But I guess the two homosexual plaintiffs can argue that it's a sexual stereotype that everyone is a heterosexual and that discrimination based on homosexuality is therefore prohibited. We'll see. I have no idea what they're going to do. But the Price Waterhouse case noted, if an employee's flawed interpersonal skills can be corrected by a soft, huge suit or a new shade of lipstick. Perhaps it is the employee's sex and not her interpersonal skills that has drawn the criticism. So if we're talking about what you're wearing, how you're presenting yourself with lipstick or not, I can see how that could be relevant to the cases coming up next year. So in this Price Waterhouse case, the Supreme Court clarified, they tried to clarify the evidence and burden of proof requirements and remanded the case back to apply their new rulings. And I have no idea what the Supreme Court's going to do next year in these three cases. They're going to hear about sex discrimination and the Civil Rights Act. And if homosexuals and transgender people are part of the prohibition against discrimination because of sex, I don't know. So I don't know what they're going to do, but I do know. And now you know what they're going to be deciding on this topic, what they're going to be arguing about, at least in part. So you can't discriminate based on sex. Does that mean you can't discriminate based on transgender status? Does it mean you can't discriminate based on homosexuality status? Or does it just mean you can't discriminate against a man or a woman because they're a man or a woman? We'll see. We'll keep you apprised right here. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 31, The Civil Rights Act of 1964, and LGBTQ protection under that act. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Contact me with your comments. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. Give me any suggestions. I'd love to hear them. Twitter, at BlueCart, Facebook.com, slash BlueCart, and the Facebook page for the podcast, which will be in the show notes. It's just The Law with D.K. Williams on Facebook. And if you'd like to contribute, once again, paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. That'll be in the show notes as well. Government is not a tool of liberation. It is a tool of oppression. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously. Thank you.